Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. First, a word from the sponsor of the Compliance Podcast Network for this month, Ethico. In the intricate world of ethics and compliance, each second is precious, and slow case closures are more than just delays, they're missed opportunities. Enter Ethico. Our solution revolutionizes case management, cutting case closure times in half, and turning every challenge into a chance for improvement. Imagine a workspace where efficiency and compliance coexist harmoniously. Don't just dream of faster resolutions, make it your reality. Visit ethico.com slash CPN today to book a demo and dive into our exclusive white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance. Empower your team with the tools they deserve. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grantart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering whether $280 million for going to a board meeting is enough to create a conflict of interest, the problems with getting Porsches and Bentleys into the country when slave labor was used to create one of the parts, why New Zealand may be losing its good reputation, and our shock and awe that the United States Supreme Court made a unanimous good decision regarding whistleblowers. But first, Tom, how's your week been, and what do you think has been the most interesting development? Well, I had to drive about 30 minutes to go have a lunch meeting today, and the weather was perfect. It was <laughs> 72. That's the most surprising. <laughs> it was sunny. Uh, winter is over in Texas, at least in my part of Texas. Um, the Obviously, the plants haven't bloomed out yet, but the uh, evergreens were very, very green. We'd had some rain, and it just reminds me how much I love this time of year, how much I love spring. It it really is a rebirth, whether you look at it from a religious, religious perspective, whether you look at it from spiritual, or whether you just look at Mother Nature herself. And uh, I was driving along thinking, this is, this is so beautiful. And I rarely um, drive this route. I went to a different town today, so it was a different route. And uh, just was thinking how gorgeous it is and how nice it is. I love that. That's fantastic. Good. Okay. So where are we going to start today? Well, I was really intrigued that we have an article from Motor Trend. So why don't we start there? <laughs> oh, we're going to start with me. All right. We can start with Motor Trend. Sure. So uh, yes, it is a very unlikely place. Uh, my husband sent me this article. Uh, he loves all things cars and compliance. And um, so it's called uh, Chinese Slave Labor Allegations Hold Up WV's Audi, Porsche, and Bentley Vehicles at U.S. Ports. So this one's got a lot of people talking, huge amounts of press. Uh, what's happened is thousands of cars have been stopped at the border for suspected violations of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. So, of course, that act allows U.S. Customs and Border Patrol to deny entry of goods with parts sourced from the Xinjiang region of China. Uh, they will prohibit those goods from coming into the country unless the company rebuts the presumption of the goods that they were made with forced labor. So they have to prove they weren't, which is pretty difficult. Uh, thousands of cars have been detained because an electric component in the car may come from that region. 
So Volkswagen stated that the part is a subpart sourced by one of their third parties. So this fourth party, nth party thing is happening in their supply chain. Uh, the Financial Times broke the story, which was quickly picked up by news organizations worldwide. Volkswagen found that it may have a problem in January, and to its credit, it alerted the authorities while sourcing a new part to replace the problematic one. And after the new part is installed, the cars should be released into the United States. So, Tom, I love this because it's the first story I've seen, I think, that's really captured the public's imagination and understanding to become a talking point. Um when you're talking about things like Porsches and Bentleys and luxury cars, it somehow feels much more tangible than, you know, banning tomatoes that come in from the region. So do you think this one moves the needle? Will people pay more attention now for this? Well, first of all, Christy, I want to shout out your continued calling out this issue. It's one been one of the consistent ones you've had over the series of this podcast. You're obviously very passionate about this. And, and yes, changing this over to luxury cars it's obviously not an item that is a staple or mandatory for many people, but the names involved here, Porsche, Audi, Bentley, um, that gets people's attention. And, you know, when you say, well, gosh, I guess we can't take the Bentley out this weekend. <laughs> I mean, that's a real problem. It is. Uh, it is. So uh, I think you're absolutely spot on both to the tactical problems of the companies involved, but it really does raise awareness in a way that um, even you and I railing against this in our very special podcast may not do. And uh, when people start to think about this is a real problem and we do need to look in our supply chain. And I don't know how much this is costing these companies to remediate this issue, but you better believe that they are spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to reme remediate the technical problem and the reputational disaster they took. Yeah, it, it is a major, major issue. And I think that it's, it's just understandable in a way that it wasn't previously. I mean, this is showing up in Motor Trend, right? This isn't just the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. It's in Motor Trend. So if we're seeing it there, we're seeing it everywhere. And it's a whole new audience of people to understand how big a deal this is. Um, and a lot of people, let's uh, let, let's move to your first article, Tom. Um, a lot of people put Tesla, maybe not in quite that category, but Tesla is, of course, a relatively luxury automobile. What's going on at Tesla this week, Tom? Well, we have talked about uh, sort of ad nauseum and at length antics of Elon Musk. We reported on his uh, losing, uh, or rather the Delaware Court of Chancery voiding his $65 billion pay package. And it, he wants to take his ball home and move the corporate headquarters, uh, a corporate charter and headquarters to the great state of Texas. Well, this uh, this is in this article is in that vein, but it focuses on another issue that I think we really need to talk about in the compliance arena, and that's the board of director oversight. Where has the board been? Who runs the company? Who does the board answer to? What is the role of the board? All questions that are raised by Mr. Musk's antics around moving Tesla from Delaware to. Texas. The thing that you correctly noted that struck me about this article is the chairman of the board's been paid $280 million in her role. And in uh, a lawsuit, she described this as, quote, life-changing, end quote. 
Well, I don't know about you, Christy, but if somebody laid 150000 on me, I'd probably say that was life-changing. I don't even need to get to $280 million. That is far beyond what any other U.S. corporation is paying. It is perhaps due to the profitability of Tesla, one of the world's largest and most valuable corporations. But it can also be seen as a way to buy silence and buy acquiescence. And it may be hard for some people to turn down $280 million, although you would think maybe I have enough, I can exercise some independence now. Maybe not. Uh, but the role of the board in this, who does the board answer to? Well, you and I know that. We learned that the first year we took commercial transactions in law school. It's the shareholders. It's not management. Even the largest shareholder, you have to answer to all shareholders. And is it in the interest of the shareholders to move out of Nevada where they have may have greater shareholder protection? Maybe not. Um, and is the board going to recommend this? And if so, what's their rationale? Mr. Musk wants it. Or do I want another $280 million? So I looked it up, Tom. The average board member of an S&P company makes 304000 for their service. Uh, the chair of Alphabet, right, the parent company of Google, made uh, $1 million. So Ms. Denham's uh, role is worth 280 times that of what the chairman, chairman of uh, Google is making in his role. Um, I mean, when, when you read the article, it's it's kind of jaw-dropping uh, that several family members of Mr. Musk are on the board and that she is supposed to be the independent one who is managing all of this. Um, I think that it definitely... Uh, I, Elon Musk would be so much better off if this were, were private. I just don't understand. Take the thing back because then you can run it however you like. But no, you can't do that when it's this kind of, uh, this kind of company. So... Um, Tom, we're talking about mis misrun companies, uh, and our favorite misrun company is definitely FTX um, with Sam Bankman-Fried and about you know their partner friend Binance. Can you tell us about that as well? The two different cases going on there. Yeah, this was a really interesting article, Christy, because I had not really focused on this angle, and this comes to us from Reuters, uh, which is a great source for legal uh, and compliance news. If you don't subscribe to it, shout out Reuters. Uh, but they looked at, uh, Kevin O'Brien wrote an article entitled FTX and Binance, A Tale of Two Cases. And he said that he correctly pointed out that the criminal or at least DOJ response to the two companies was very, very different. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried had a very high profile trial uh, over the last, uh, uh, in Q3 and Q4 of 2023. And we all reveled in that. It could not have been more fun. It could not have been more Peyton Place-ish. Um, but Binance, in many ways, was equally, if not more, nefarious in their conduct. Yet, uh, no one's been criminally prosecuted yet. Uh, no one, um, uh, the company still exists under monitorship. Nevertheless, it still exists and is an ongoing business concern. Well, why the difference in responses? One of the reasons may be that FTX fell and disintegrated so quickly that for reasons that have yet to be publicly released, the DOJ moved with incredible speed to indict, literally within a month. 
of the collapse of FTX. Uh, I think there was an indictment. And FTX, because of the speed of the collapse, uh, really did not know how to respond in the interim, in the short interim of one month between their collapse and the initial DOJ indictments. So they couldn't put a plan together in place. Sam Bankman-Fried was gone relatively quickly. Uh, the oversight through the bankruptcy court of the bankruptcy trustee, I think on this podcast, we quoted him as saying this was the worst run company he had ever seen. And this was the guy that oversaw Enron. So the internal controls and documentation in FTX was completely lacking. I don't think they had the ability, at least with the team they had in place, to put a response together. Yet Binance did. And um, Binance had a little bit longer to not only uh, prepare for the Department of Justice, they sat down and negotiated a plea agreement. Uh, now, $4 billion in fines and penalties answering to a court-appointed monitor, those were stern terms, but I have to emphasize they're still ongoing. Uh, the company's still going. Uh, the SEC may weigh in with some more or additional sanctions. Nevertheless, once again, they're still ongoing. So I think there's a lot to learn here, which is that if you step in quickly to not simply, I don't think either of these entities could have remediated immediately, but if you step in and proactively work with the Department of Justice, um, you may be able to get the type of sanction that Binance got as opposed to the criminal sanction that Mr. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried may be going to jail for a long, long time. Yeah, it was really interesting in this article where they said that uh, Binance's founder is still allowed to own his company, right? And Sam Bankman-Fried is gone to jail. Um, one of the things I thought was supremely interesting in this article, Tom, was they were talking about the SEC declining to participate in the DOJ settlement, right? And um, as that's going forward, Binance has said, wait, they don't have jurisdiction. Uh, the SEC does not uh, motion to dismiss on the ground that crypto is not a security. So are we finally going to find out for certain, Tom, whether crypto is in fact a security or not based on the outcome of this motion to dismiss? What do you think? Uh I have to say, I've always thought it was a security. Uh, I think in, under the Howey test of whenever that was in the 30s, 40s, or 50s, I think it's uh, clearly to me a security um, because you're using it as an investment vehicle. Uh, I think the SEC has jurisdiction, and I think the SEC will move forward uh, once we get past this uh, legal hump. I agree, but then that we'll definitely cover that on this podcast if that happens because of all the consternation that I'm getting. Bitcoin because it's not regulated and blah, blah, blah. Oh, but it will be. That is my assumption. The SEC is not going to tell itself that it doesn't have jurisdiction. So more to come. All right. You, you have an article that uh, is on EU corporate sustainability uh, that may not be what our listeners were expecting or even wanted to hear. You want to tell us what's going on? Um, I, I'd prefer not to, but since I did bring it up, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, talk about it. So this article broke my little compliance heart. It's from Forbes, and it's titled EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Law Most Likely Dead for Now. 
Um, okay. So I've been pretty psyched about the CSDD as it's frequently known. Um, it had very prescriptive requirements for disclosure of the types of due diligence being performed by the in-scope parties on their third parties from an environmental and human rights perspective. So really strong compliance elements. And everything looked like it was working. It was ahead of schedule. So the draft was on track to be finalized and signed before the next EU election, which is going to take place in June. But recently, Germany got unhappy. See, they like their own supply chain act just the way it is, thank you very much, and were concerned that adding another reporting obligation would be too much for German companies. Kind of, kind of reasonable, actually. Uh, however, they threatened to abstain from the vote. Once Germany said they were out, multiple members were like, me too, I'm not doing this, and it became clear that the European Council would not be able to get the majority vote to pass the legislation. So the 3S, uh, the CSDD may not be dead yet, but it's certainly on life support. So it could be revived after the June election, but if the composition of the body shifts toward people less friendly to corporate sustainability efforts, that may not happen. So... Tom, I was I was genuinely shocked by this when it was fast tracked in December. It happened, um, you know, got through the parliament sooner than expected. We had the final text that was just going to be negotiated by the council. We thought this was a done deal, and it's really going to be disappointing to compliance officers that it's not. What's your take? Is this going to happen? Is it done? What do you think? Well, I have to say, Christy, when this article, there's been a series of articles on this initially came out. I was truly surprised. Uh, typically, you don't get to that stage at the EU without every I dotted, every T crossed, every vote counted, all concerns are taken care of. So I was really surprised to see Germany back out at the last minute. Maybe it was because they like their supply chain law. I've read some commentary that suggests they didn't want this burden. All of that surprises me. But the bottom line is we, at this point, have lost what would have been one of the most stringent requirements for due diligence uh, on the supply chain side. Um, I think companies need to do that from a business perspective. So I'm not offended by requiring that by law. I think it will only make companies stronger and more resilient. Every company I know who has gone through a level five supply chain analysis figured out there was a lot of waste, a lot of inefficiencies, may have been some problems. Whatever they were, they were able to clean them, clean it up and prepare going forward. Yes, is it costly? Yes. It does have some cost, but it will make you a better run business and make you more efficient and at the end of the day, more profitable. So uh, I am not offended by this, uh, the requirements of this proposed law. I am disappointed that it looks like it's not going to get through, at least at this session. Yeah. I'm just, I think that we still have people that contact us that say, you know, I really don't want to do anything but the minimum. What do I have to do? Tell me what the requirements are. And the beauty of this one was that because it had this sort of up and down the food chain issue, people had to be involved in it, even if your company didn't really want to be. Uh, that's gone away. And I think it's a real loss. Well, let me give a little bit of a celebration then after we had Debbie Downer for our last segment. <laughs> the Hill of all publications, uh, celebrated the 25th anniversary of the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. Um, this is actually a seminal treaty because it took the concepts that the U.S. put in place in the FCPA in 1977, and nearly 25 years later after the FCPA came into effect, the rest of the world, or at least the developed northern industrialized countries, got on board. 
It's officially called the Convention on Combating Bribery of Foreign Officials in International Business Transaction. That's a mouthful. But it required signatory companies to criminalize bribery of foreign public officials. It provided open-end monitoring to make sure the international obligations uh, that the countries agreed to were implemented by their respective companies or countries, rather. It required uh, um, not a self-monitorship, but a sort of a cross-monitorship, Christine. One of the most interesting parts is that companies, countries rather, will go look at other countries and at corruption compliance regimes. And it's called a, a phase review. Uh, they, uh, the most sophisticated has been a phase four, which the U.S. has gone through. I was privileged to participate in that uh, at being interviewed by OECD representatives from outside the United States. So I know the rigor that they go through. Uh, some of our colleagues in um, uh, compliance that we know who were formerly at the Department of Justice or other government agencies participated in the review as U.S. representatives, and they're now in private practice, and they talk about that experience and how they learned from that experience. So we're, we're sort of looking at each other, and we're naming and shaming. There's no sanctions to be brought. But um, this this treaty uh, is to be celebrated. America is a signatory to this treaty. And interestingly, in a case in, I think, 2005, the district court uh, cited to the OECD treaty as U.S. law, because that's what the Constitution says. So it's a treaty uh, ratified by the Senate. Um, and so uh, the U.S. law was enshrined in international law, and it has some additional requirements regarding due diligence in it that are a part of now U.S. law that U.S. companies can't get out of. So uh, the OECD uh, Anti-Bribery Convention was a huge step on a worldwide basis to fight the international scourge of corruption, which the world, uh, the United Nations estimates $3 trillion is lost annually, over 5% of the world's economy to corruption. So uh, it's a time to celebrate. Uh, we in the U.S. don't typically talk about, we geeks like you and I do, talk about the OECD treaty because they had 13 best practices as a part of the treaty that you can cite as a part of a best practices compliance program. But uh, it's really something that the world should celebrate, certainly uh, businesses, because it leveled the playing field. And shout out to the Hill for bringing this to our attention. Yeah, I spoke at one of the OECD anti-bribery conventions. I believe it was a celebration probably five years ago. It might have been the 20th anniversary. And it was a pretty amazing thing to be there in Paris with all of these thought leaders and government officials talking about how important this treaty has been and also talking about you know where it's going next. So. Good stuff. Congratulations, OECD. Long may it continue. So, Christy, you mentioned in our opening about a U.S. Supreme Court case involving whistleblowers. What happened? Tom, it's good stuff. It's the U.S. Supreme Court doing something well and unanimously. Can you? I just, I, I almost fell over. So this article comes from Reuters. Again, shout out to Reuters. It's titled, U.S. Supreme Court in UBS case makes it easier for whistleblowers to win suits. So what was this about? Well, in 2012, a man named Trevor Murray was working as an analyst at the giant Swiss bank, UBS. Um, he accused the company of firing him in retaliation for his refusal to publish misleading research reports. So after he complained about being pressured, he was terminated. 
he sued and a New York jury awarded him $2.6 million. Uh, and then, of course, UBS appealed. So the Supreme Court's job was to determine whether the whistleblower had to prove that the company intended to retaliate against the whistleblower. So if UBS had won, the standard would be that the plaintiff had the burden of proof to show that retaliation was intentional, which is obviously pretty darn difficult to do. Uh, luckily, the Supreme Court said, uh-uh, nope. It said that whistleblowers only need to show that they were treated differently than other employees because they had reported this illegal conduct. So it is much easier to prove that the company treated you differently because you reported rather than to prove that they intentionally retaliated against you. So, Tom, the Supreme Court got it right in this case. Isn't that awesome? It is stunning uh, <laughs> that this Supreme Court could do anything right. Uh, but the thing uh, that struck me was a little bit different, Christy. This is one of several sort of whistleblower developments that we've had that I think have really strengthened uh, whistleblower laws. We've had uh, the DFS in New York issue some regs. We had this case. We had a couple of others. Uh, so I think whistleblower, these, this is one more step to protect and reward his whistleblowers. And hopefully uh, this trend will continue. Well, and I think we reported... Uh, earlier last year at some point that the largest whistleblower numbers ever had come out again in terms of the aggregate amount that whistleblowers got and that the um, SEC in particular had received many, many more reports than they ever had before. So I think that there is um, an understanding maybe in the broader world about the stakes and what's available, especially getting whistleblowers to blow the whistle inside, not outside. But also, if they want to outside, they can. And uh, we reported as well that the um, SEC was coming down on the firms that uh, had clauses in their uh, negotiation packages for people leaving that said, you can't report things unless you tell us to the government. They struck those down and gave them fines for that. So I really think that there is a, a better environment, just like you said, for the whistleblowers now than ever before. So. Our next story is one of my favorites. It is a story I've been watching for years. It is a story that never ends. It may never end. Uh, and it involves the U.S. company HP and their acquisition of autonomy, I think, back in 2012. Yes, 2024, and we're still talking about HP's acquisition of autonomy. So uh, this particular story comes to us from Bloomberg. And in this story, Christy, uh, Mike Lynch, the former CEO at Autonomy, was found guilty of defrauding HP, amazingly enough, in a British court. I never thought that would happen. He's uh, currently awaiting trial in the United States on criminal charges by the U.S. Department of Justice. But this was a civil case in the United Kingdom. And in this case, uh, after being found guilty, now uh, he has been found liable, or rather a quantum award, of $4 billion against him for the fraud he engaged in. Uh, this story was, it's just incredible. I'm not going to go through all the highlights, lowlights, and sagas. But the bottom line is HP did full due diligence. Uh, the CFO said, if we do this, it will be an unmitigated disaster. They bought the company for $11 billion. Uh, 18 months later, they wrote off $8.8 billion. Uh, yeah, it was an unmitigated disaster. Yet, they successfully brought civil action against Mike Lynch. They prodded the Department of Justice in San Francisco to bring criminal action. And now Lynch potentially is on the hook for $4 billion. 
and he's looking at uh, a criminal trial in the United States where the former CFO has already been convicted. So I don't think things look very good for Mike Lynch right now, Christy. Mm, they don't, no. But I, my favorite part of this article was the defense. So the lawyer for Lynch uh, said that the loss amount, right, when they're trying to calculate these damages, should be the difference between the price paid in a, quote, counterfactual world, unquote, and the actual price, which apparently they, uh, they prefer alternative facts in terms of how to calculate. That was a pretty amazing quote. Indeed it was. Indeed it was. So, Christy, I think um, your next story is around uh, an EUAI Act and how that might uh, impact uh, U.S. companies, particularly around compliance. Yeah. So we uh, were excited around here uh, when we reported that the EUAI Act had been passed. And by AI, of course, we mean artificial intelligence. Um, this article comes from the Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance section, and it's titled How EUAI uh, Act May Accelerate Compliance Regime for U.S. Enterprises. So the article goes into a lot of detail about the new European AI Act, uh, which is the first of its kind in terms of the large scale legislation regulating AI. Don't think it'll be the last, but it is the first. Um, and it's got a lot of really interesting quirks about it. Now, I want to preface this by saying that uh, the final draft of all the legislation, all of the operating terms just aren't done yet. So, but we do have pieces of it. And this article is really going into how to manage that. So the journal notes that like the European General Data Protection Act, GDPR, the AI Act is extraterritorial, meaning that if your product or software uh, includes an AI element and is sold into the European market, you have obligations. So the article's most interesting substance relates to the added compliance obligations. So for instance, companies will require required to adopt a risk-based tiered approach to AI that is dictated by the EU. If you want to see what that is, the article had a really good pyramid that described what activities are considered high risk or level four, which are low risk level one. But for me, the most interesting part is that the draft language requires companies with certain uh, higher risk AI activities that are headquartered outside the EU to appoint an authorized representative inside the EU to give EU authorities access to someone with the necessary information to describe the company's compliance with the law. So this is very similar to GDPR, which required a data protection officer in or data privacy officer in many circumstances, right? Our DPOs. So I'm excited, mostly, Tom, that we may get a new acronym, right? Because we have to have new acronyms and we have new laws. So are we going to have an AIPO for an artificial intelligence protection officer, an APO, an AIPO? I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What's our new, what new line going to be? I'm an EPO. Uh, I don't know, but I can't wait for a new acronym as well. Oh, God knows we need them. We don't have enough acronyms yes. in compliance. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. All right. So what is going on in New Zealand? So, Christy, uh, this is sort of my fun story because when my daughter calls me and complains about some first world problem she has or similar, I sort of call her out for it. Well, here's the problem New Zealand has. They have fallen precipitously on the TICPI from one to three. And they are just a gnashing of teeth, much more, much worse than a gnashing of teeth. They're very concerned about this. Uh, here in the U.S., I think we're 20. So looking up, it's looking pretty good for me here. Um, 
and uh, they're very worried. And perhaps I shouldn't make such light of it, but they hope to be able to regain Sweden's number one, Norway's number two. Uh, shout out to Nordic countries. No surprise there. But poor New Zealand, number three. So maybe Mary Shirley needs to go home and help them out. <laughs> okay. This article actually did have some, some pretty interesting substance in it too. And, and yes, the hand-wringing of going from being number one to number three on the uh, Transparency International Corruptions Perception Index. I wanted to say what TICPI meant because, again, we're in acronym land. Um but, they, but, you know, they did have something to worry about, though, from the uh, articles reporting, because their soft power on the global soft power index had gone down by 10. That actually is significant if they're not able to move world opinion in the way that they previously did. Um, and I, I really did like, however, the way that the article ended. It talked about how Australia had had some issues like this um, going down. Again, they, they're very good on the list, but they went down a bit. And in response, did uh, some federal anti-corruption commission creation and made significant whistleblower protections that they've now implemented. Um, and I, I just have to say, I spent a uh, semester in New Zealand and Australia, but half of it was in Christchurch, New Zealand. So I believe in you, Christchurch. I believe in you, New Zealand. You can do it. So, Christy, what does Florida Woman have for us this week? So, from the sublime New Zealand to Florida, uh, it is now time for Florida Woman. So, what happens when bad financial controls meet a sketchy bookkeeper? Well, we now know the answer. So, this as yet to be named Florida Woman, who, by the way, has her picture and her mugshots up. I don't really understand, but she's anyway, she's unnamed. Um, she was recently arrested and charged with grand theft and fraudulent use of credit cards after she racked up $1.6 million in charges on her company credit card. So clearly the financial controls weren't great since she got away with it for six years. Now, here's what happened. She applied for the company credit card despite not being entitled to have one. And once she got it, she bought things on Amazon, splurged on flights, even took one or two carnival cruises on the company. Can you imagine she's signing up for her paid time off and asking for time off to go on the cruise the company bought. They didn't know they bought her. Uh, she was, however, very thorough and thoughtful, and she kept meticulous records of her purchases via email. Why would you do that? Um, when she was let go, uh, only after that did her boss finally notice a, quote, pattern of deceit, unquote, that had been going on six years to the tune of $1.6 million. He's not paying very much attention. When she was arrested, she said that the business owner allowed her actions because she was inadequately compensated. As you may imagine, <laughs> her former boss vehemently disagreed. And only a Florida bookkeeper would meticulously chronicle their fraud in an email. Well done, Florida woman. We love your adherence to record keeping. Good job. Wow. Um, low pay is an excuse for fraud. How are I've you going to manage that, that. $1.6 million in cruises unless you're <laughs> stealing? Come on. Wow. Well, uh, Chrissy, it's been a lot of fun and a great show. I can't wait to see what next time brings. I am Tom Fox. I'm Christy Granhart. Have a great rest of your day. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Two Gurus post every other Friday, so I hope you will join us again for another, our, our next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. 
The award-winning Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.